This is really a good time. Yeah. yeah. The most. A blast. Vern didn't just mean being off limits inside the junkyard or fudging on our folks or going on a hike up the railroad tracks to Harlow. He meant those things, but it seems to me now it was more and that we all knew it. Everything was there and around us. We knew exactly who we were and exactly where we were going. It was grand. My name is Stephen King. Welcome to Filmstrip, and our views of selected works of Stephen King featuring Nick, Kiss me, fat boy! And Jay. Sometimes, that is better. These podcasts will be spoiler-filled and contain in-depth discussions of the plots, characters, and themes. Hey, what's the big deal? Who cares? All content used or discussed in this podcast is the property of the respective owners and used under the Fair Use Act, Section 504C2, Title 17. I'm going to scare the hell out of you. And now, here are Nick and Jay. Welcome to Continuous Play Podcast Film Strip. I'm Jay. And I'm Nick. And this is our review of Stand By Me, starring Will Wheaton, River Phoenix, Corey Feldman, Jerry O'Connell, Kiefer Sutherland, and Richard Dreyfus. Directed by Rob Reiner, released in 1986 on a budget of $8 million, grossed over $52 million in its run. Considered one of the best story adaptations of Stephen King works, and the one that really introduced the world to the softer side of Stephen King, if you will. So, Nick, you seen or read this one before? Oh, both. Yep, I have read it, and I have seen it multiple times. Okay, I have as well. I'm I'm very familiar with this one. I mean, this is it, it was hard to have grown up in the 80s and and not seen this, particularly because if you grew up in that time, most likely your parents were from this time and, you know, my dad saw this and uh, saw it on cable and wound up going out and, uh, or no, actually I think he saw it in a video store and heard about it and rented it and uh, he and I watched it and of course he was a part of that generation and related a lot of those stories and stuff. It's just one of those, another one of those things. Like a lot of times we start these podcasts, we start talking about these older films. It will involve stories around my family, particularly my dad who introduced me to a lot of different kinds of movies, but he was a big Stephen King guy and he liked this one a lot. This is based on a short story called the body. And like I said, this is sort of the softer side of Stephen King. You know, before we've done the, you know, the haunted house kind of thing or the haunted person, I guess you'd say with the shining. And then we did, you know, the trilogy of terror with cat's eye. And then we, we did uh werewolves with silver bullet last time. And so now we're doing something that's, there's nothing supernatural about any of this. It's just kids and kind of their imaginations and, you know, going out on a bit of an adventure in the 1950s. Yeah. This is like one of the Stephen King adaptations that, um, you know, you got the, like say you got the supernatural ones, you got the scary ones, but this one kind of fits into like with, you know, misery fits in with um, Dolores Claiborne, fits in with the Shawshank Redemption real well, that it's just, you know, just a straight character piece. There's really exactly. nothing, you know, not, nothing really scary about it. It's just a real simple plot, and it just, it's all about the characters and just their interactions with each other. Yeah, I mean, that's really what, what it's about. It's about these groups of friends, and particularly two friends, our two main characters, and we'll get into that in a bit. But, you, you know, there's two others there that you mentioned, Misery and Shawshank Redemption, that we'll be getting to as a part of this uh, selected works of Stephen King retrospective as we go forward. We're not doing Dolores Claiborne. I, I know to the chagrin of many Kathy Bates fans, but uh, you know, we're not, we're not going to hit that one, but uh, you're right. It's in that same vein of things. It's, there's nothing supernatural about it. There's no vampires.
vampires. There's no witches coven. There's, you know, there's no Satan making deals with people, you know, for their souls or anything like that. It's just kids and kind of what it was like to be a kid during this time. And uh, it, I don't know, I, an interesting take. And I, I guess we need to do the plot and then we can get into this because we've got to talk about the actors in this because we, we know them from so many things, I think, in their adult lives as much as we did as they were child actors, too. So if you will, Nick, please give us the plot summary of Stand By Me. Not a problem. Based on Stephen King's short story, The Body, Stand By Me tells the tale of Gordy... Lachance, writer who looks back on his preteen days when he and three close friends went on their own adventure to find the body of a kid their age who had been gone missing and was presumed dead. In the group, we have Gordy, who has recently lost his older brother in a Jeep accident, and his entire family is struggling to keep it together. His best friend, Chris Chambers, who is seemingly destined and determined to grow up to be a troublemaker. Teddy, the eccentric depressive who is easily recognized by his mangled remains of his right ear, and Vern, the fat, oafish butt-of-all-jokes who has overheard his brother and one of his hoodlum friends discuss the finding of the body of Ray Brower. The boys set off to find the body so that they may become local heroes, or so they think. Meanwhile, the local hoods, led by Ace, plan to do the same thing. Gordy and Chris meet up with Teddy and Vern at the train tracks where they realize no one's brought food. They take out their money and agree to buy something along the way. As the train approaches, everyone but Teddy gets off the tracks. Track Teddy imitates shooting an automatic at the train, intent on dodging it at the last second. Just like my father in Normandy, he would say. Chris, however, pulls him off before the stunt can be performed and yells at him for nearly killing himself. They soon arrive at the local junkyard and it's rumored to house a disgruntled owner with a furious dog named Chopper, which is supposedly trained to attack any intruders going right for the person's balls. (laughs) However, the yard is empty, and the four rest in the shade of a car hood for a few minutes while Gordy, after losing a race, goes to retrieve food at a store on the other side of town. On his way back, he notices the others scrambling over the yard fence and turns in time to see the owner, Milo, yelling for Chopper. Gordy frantically runs for the fence with the dog close on his heels, but makes it over the top. He turns and sees Chopper is not the dog he expected. Milo rushes over the fence Front run, r- rushes over to the fence and berates the four boys making fun of, for making fun of his dog. Teddy throws a few insults, but is shocked silent when Milo calls his father a loony. Teddy breaks down, shouting that his father stormed the beach at Normandy and is led away by the others. Following the train tracks, they come to a bridge. They hesitate to cross, unsure of when the next train is due. Feeling confident, they begin to cross with Chris and Teddy in the lead and Gordy trailing behind with Vern, who's chosen to crawl instead of walk. Midway, Vern loses a comb that he packed in his shirt pocket, which he'd hope he'd use once they find the body and report it to the local news. Gordy consistently looks back and bends down to feel the rails. A light vibration leads him to see plumes of smoke in the distance. He shouts train and yells at Vern to get to his feet and run. They barely able they're barely able to make it to the other side of the tracks before the train comes. After telling funny stories around that evening, Chris confides in Gordy that he hates his family name and the association he has left with them, wishing to leave for a start fresh somewhere and actually make something of himself. Gordy and the others take a short take a shortcut through the woods and land in a swamp infested with leeches. They strip down and Gordy finds one attached to his lower extremities, fainting after removing it. Eventually they come back to the train tracks and discover Ray's 
body knocked clean out of his shoes and lying in some bushes. They decide to build a stretcher for him, and Gordy breaks down, crying that his father truly hates him and knowing that he favored Denny. Ace and the rest of the gang appear and demand that the boys leave so they can take the body. Chris insults him, and Ace pulls out a knife before Gordy fires a gun into the air. He threatens Ace, saying it'll be easy to kill him, and Ace leaves. Gordy announces that no one will get credit for the finding Ray, and they instead report it through an anonymous call. They return to town with Gordy narrating that it seemed so much smaller after their journey. As the boys split up and headed home, Gordy narrates that Vern and Teddy grew distant over the next few years. Vern married straight out of high school and had four children and became a forklift driver at a lumberyard. Teddy attempted to join the army but was rejected and eventually served some time in jail. Chris managed to stick it out in school with Gordy and went on to become a lawyer. <laughs> yeah. However, he was stabbed and killed as he tried to break up a fight in a fast food restaurant, which is the very article Gordy read at the start of the film. Was the guy Samuel L. Jackson? <laughs> no. I'm just thinking like coming to America. <laughs> yeah. No, no, no. <laughs> More like Superman 2. <laughs> Gordy closes the film as he finishes a memoir he's been writing about his childhood and leaves to take his son and friend out swimming. Yeah. Dun, dun, dun. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, yeah not, none of those moments really in this one. Like you said, big character piece. And I think that's where we got to start. We got to talk about our characters here. And in doing so, I guess we'll talk about the young actors that portray them. We'll start off with Gordy. Will Wheaton. Now, I only know him from one other thing, and that's the fact that he was on Star Trek The Next Generation, a show I was not a fan of, but that I did watch some of, so I know him from that. But I assume he may have done other things in his life, but really I know him from this and that show, and that's kind of it. I kind of know him from the Family Guy joke. <laughs> <laughs> Will Wheaton, or however he says it. Yeah, yeah, with the the, the emphasis on the H. But, uh, yeah. yeah. But you know what? I, I'll say this. Uh, Richard Dreyfus plays the older Gordy, and as I understand it, they went through multiple actors for that. They wound up shooting the Dreyfus stuff late in the process and getting him to do it. I, I can kind of buy that Will Wheaton would grow up to become Richard Dreyfus. Like they, they do work together, though I think Will Wheaton's probably a foot taller than him in real life. They, they have similar mannerisms, and I, and I like the way Will Wheaton plays this. I mean, he really has to carry this film for a chunk of it because he's the voice of everything that happens. It's all coming from his point of view. So essentially we're watching his memories, but he's also having to expose himself because a lot of this is really about him and his family and the fact that they lost you know, his older brother, Denny and a cameo by John Cusack and that, you know, that, that, and whether it's real or not, his perception that his family, his father in particular, favored his brother. And they're all kind of dealing with that loss. And I, you know what? I liked him. I think he's, he's one of the things in this that you can always go back to and like. He's a real likable kid, and he, he comes off as just a, a, a likable character. I like Gordy in this. Yeah, definitely. When I was watching this, um, I was just kind of getting flashbacks of the Wonder Years. So much with just like the whole way it looked. Yeah. Even this, even this plot with uh, his brother dying didn't it remind you so, like a lot of Winnie Cooper's brother dying. Yeah, it it had a little bit of that going on for it. But you know, here's another one. The next film we're going to talk about is it, and a big subplot of that is the lead character's brother dying. And so again, you know, these these recurring themes with Stephen King. I mean, he does this over and over again. And I mean, I can't watch this now 
knowing what I know about it and not see Bill and Georgie in this and, and not think of that when I see Gordy and Denny. You know, I mean, it's just that same thing with these two. It's, it, it, and King repeats those over and over again. Yeah, King is very much, he loves to reuse plot elements and, you know, very much he likes to use locations. I mean, yeah. the movie in this takes place in Castle Rock. And if you know anything about Stephen King, I mean, Castle Rock is a very, very, you know, used place for him. He uses that well, a lot as like a setting or he mentions well, it a lot. It's, it's interesting you mentioned that, though, because they note it as Castle Rock, Oregon, not Maine. Um, and yeah. I, I, normally I catch that, but I, and I don't know if that was Rob Reiner's choice or what, but this is said in Oregon and not Maine because so much of Stephen King stuff, I mean, you think of Stephen King, you think Maine, right? I know The Shining wasn't there, but almost everything else is in Maine, right? Well, we've talked about it. Everything, the other two films we've reviewed have been, you know, at least partially in Maine, two out of three in, uh, Cat's Eye and then, um, uh, all of Silver Bullet was in a small town in Maine. So yeah, you're right. It's this small town in Maine. And I, I found that interesting though, that they make a point of saying it's in Oregon, but I'm like, yeah, yeah it's weird because Castle Rock is a place that you hear him mention often. Yeah. Yeah. I don't know why they did that. I mean, I guess when you kind of look at like the scenery of the film and everything, I mean, it kind of does strike me more as like a Oregon, you know, maybe the Dakotas, Montana type setting. I don't know why. It just kind of hit me like that with like, I don't know. Just seemed like it kind of came off more like that than Maine. I always, when I, when I think of Maine, I'm thinking more, more of a wilderness look, you know, even though like this was in the, like the woods and stuff like that, it really didn't have like that. If you watch like a lot of other Stephen King movies like Misery or something, when they're in the woods, it has more of like a lush feeling, which is how I always feel like Maine feels like, where this kind of felt more like the country. So uh, maybe that's why they did it. I don't know. Yeah, it could, could I'm just, be. I'm just kind of, I'm kind of just guessing. <laughs> yeah, I mean, yeah, we we don't really don't know. I mean, that's that's a good point. But back to Gordy and and kind of Will Wheaton, I just like the whole the whole thing that he, the, I guess his whole persona in this. He's somebody who is clearly the smartest one in the group and got a lot going for him, but is. Uh, he clearly damaged and has things wrong. You know, he's got problems and, and I like that he's so vulnerable. Well, I think he makes it relatable to anybody. I mean, who doesn't never, ha who's never had problems with their parents or, you know, ever felt, you know, if you have siblings, I mean, there's always going to be that little sibling rivalry there, or it's a little bit of jealousy and by having the brother die and then having that, you know, him feeling that way about his dad, I think it really just kind of makes him a lot more relatable to the audience. No, I, I, I agree totally. Now, let's move on to his best friend, Chris Chambers. Probably the most famous, or I guess I should say infamous, member of the cast here. River Phoenix, the late River Phoenix, I should say. Died you know, only a few years after this. Uh, really, five years later after this. But of the Phoenix clan, you know, he was the, the wild one. And he plays a kid who's essentially hell-bent on self-destruction for whatever reason here. And it's weird to watch this now knowing how River Phoenix's life ended and all the problems he had and stuff like that, and that he basically crashed and burned early. And Chris Chambers' whole thing is that he's pretty much sure he's just going to crash and burn out and be nothing. Yeah, definitely. I mean, you, you, you totally get that he was almost kind of playing himself in this. I mean... You think of River Phoenix, you think of a bad boy, you think of someone who was bound for self-destruction, and that's what he was playing in the movie, and that's exactly where his character ended up. There was absolutely no redemption for this character in the movie, and when you hear the uh, the end of it, when he talks about how he died, 
And yeah, it's, you know, he does do a very good role, though. I think actually out of the movie, he is the standout. And honestly, who didn't have a friend like him growing up? Yeah, oh, yeah. I mean, everybody has somebody you can relate to like this. I, I'm so reminded of a guy that I was in Boy Scouts with that, I mean, he looked like Chris Chambers if Chris Chambers had dark hair. You know, I mean, he was so like the spinning image of him and taught like him and stuff. And the funny thing is, is and recently I caught up with one of his relatives uh, over the holiday break and he's doing great. Mary got multiple kids, you know, doing fine or whatever. But boy, you were just sure this guy was going to meet the wrong end of a chainsaw. You know, when you knew him in his preteen and teen years, because he was just crazy, you know, but he was smart enough to realize that if he would align, him, align himself with the right folks, he could make something out of himself. You know, he was a hard working guy and a hard guy who came from a hard family. And he's sort of that one out of the generation that decided not to let that beat him down. But I like Chris here and I like the way River Phoenix plays him because he is vulnerable. And as you learn through the story and when you learn that he's dead at the end of the story, you know, you totally get it because two or three different times in this film, he stands up in between people. He's the guy that gets in the middle of things. And so you totally buy that he would grow up to become somebody that would try to break up a fight at a restaurant and would get killed in the process. Yeah, definitely. I mean, when the, he pulls him off the train tracks, when he pulls uh, Teddy off the train tracks and everything, he shows very much demonstrates that he's willing to put his life on the line to help someone out. Let's talk about old Teddy there. We've already had our first Corey Haim film. It's time to get Corey Feldman in, in the old mix here now, too. Corey Feldman plays Teddy Duchamp, you know, a tough-talking, kind of weird kid who he's... He only's in a weird spot, right? Because he's eternally proud of, and you feel like in some ways trying to live up to the shadow of the hero that his father is. But his father's also the one that beats him and you know burned his ear off on a stove once. I mean, somebody who's obviously gone through a lot of what we would call post-traumatic stress now in the wake of what he saw in World War II. What did you make of Teddy, and what did you make really of of the way uh, you know our our buddy Corey Feldman plays him? I felt really bad for him throughout the movie. I mean, you can tell he's really a troubled guy, and he's just trying to pull the most positive aspects from an abusive father he can. And you can just tell, even, you know, like when the one, that Milo guy was insulting his father, just how, you know, he just went off about it, and it's just, you know, he's got that, it's almost like I think when Milo said that, that he was almost trying to convince himself by yelling at the guy and saying he's going to rip his head off and shit down his throat, that he's almost trying to convince it to himself that that wasn't true. That's the way it came off to me. Isn't it the, the mark of like people that have been abused is that they will often defend their abusers to those that try to confront them when they're in the denial stage, and especially oh, as, as a kid, you know? Yeah, you see it on cops all the time when there's an abusive relationship and the cops come and the woman's going... I don't arrest him. I love him. And it's like, yeah, he just beats you up. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's, you know, you're right. You're exactly right. And and particularly with kids, and Stephen King does this often with abused kids are a theme he will use a lot in his work. It's in a lot of different places. Sometimes it's very subtextual. Sometimes it's very outspoken like here. But it it's a character trait or arc that he often employs to tell a story. And the thing about Teddy that's interesting is he and Chris are just as tough. Like they're, they're both tough kids. Like you figure if they fought each other really threw down, it would probably be a draw, 
you know, or, or five in five over 10 good scraps, you know, but the difference is Chris knows kind of the loser path he's on and he's struggling and trying to get out of it. Teddy is convinced that he's not going to turn out that way, that it's not that bad. And as we find out, yes, it is. And he goes down that, you know, kind of sad loser path. Yeah. He's the type of guy, you know, He'd get into a fight and get his butt kicked, but he'd keep on getting up and keep on taking it more. He just doesn't know when to stop. That's just the kind of character he took, I, I took him as. Exactly. And then last, Vern, Jerry O'Connell, the star of Scream 2 and My Secret Identity. That's the only thing I know him from until he did I know Piranha. Him as, uh, Miss, Mr. <laughs> uh, Rebecca Romain. Yeah, yeah he's, he's that as well. But, you know, a longtime actor, right? But the funny thing is, is you look at this pudgy kid and the fact that he grew up to be this six foot three, you know, kind of hunk is, is funny. I mean, he's just a sack of potatoes here, though. Yeah, definitely. I, I like his character, though. I think he's funny. He's no... God, I mean, he's going to say it for every character. We all had friends like this growing up. It's, yeah, everybody I mean, we had... All had and we, you all know had we all had the crazy kid. We all had the one kid that came from a really bad household. Yeah. We all had the fat kid as our friend. We all had That's, the fat, funny friend. And you know what? I know exactly who that friend of mine is. And I, he doesn't look like Jerry O'Connell, but he is a tall, skinny drink of water now as an adult. And it's funny to think about that because he was just a butterball when we were this age. And it's it's funny to me to think about that, but he's very much like Bird. You know, the butt of the joke, but he doesn't mind being the butt of the joke because he's funny. And he likes to be funny. And I kind of, you know, you always respect a friend like that that will laugh at himself a little bit. And I kind of like that. And I think, you know, the funny thing is Jerry O'Connell, if he has anything at all, because he's incredibly bland <laughs> for the most part in any of the roles he's ever played, but he has really good comedic timing, I think. I've always thought he had he had good comedy, and he doesn't here. He has good comedy. And, I mean, you read some of the behind-the-scenes stuff, the way the other kids pick on him, like, they sort of conspired to come up with that stuff on the set, and Rob Reiner just let them do it to him to see how he would react. And the way you see Vern react is how Jerry O'Connell reacted to them. And I, you kind of dig that. I mean, it's neat to watch the kid actors actually get to be kids in a movie instead of trying to play 30-year-olds in a 12-year-old's body. No, definitely. And I think just also why these child actors work so well is, you know, many times you watch a movie and the child actor's terrible, you know, Phantom Menace or, you know, there's numerous movies. But, like, the problems with those movies is the kid's never able to be a kid. You know, not put in, like, a normal situation where a kid would be put into and be able to act that way. Whereas that's why I think this movie works really well is you got, you know, the preteens, teenagers, and they get to act like preteen teenagers in it. Exactly. They play them, and they and they all are playing themselves in a way. Yeah, it's just, yeah, they really it's are. Casting for perfect roles for them. Yeah, I mean, and and I think you have to hand a little bit of this too. You know, I don't know what you make of Rob Reiner, but I'll tell you what you get Rob Reiner for. If you want kind of witty comedy, and you want real kind of poignant Americana Norman Rockwell type of direction, that's what he's good at. And it, you know, for a guy that came up on on all of the family and some of the things he did, you know, coming through as an actor, he's kind of as an actor. But I'll tell you this: as a director, he has a real touch when it comes to this kind of light drama, you know. And he's good at sort of infusing comedy and drama together, particularly when it's like family units or kids and things like that. I've seen him do it in a lot of different films that he's directed, and I think he really hits the stroke here with this. This this may be the one of the best films he ever did. Uh, in my opinion, as a director. 
Yeah, before he kind of went off the loose end <laughs> right now. He's a little too obsessed with smoking. Uh, yeah, I mean, he's, he's a little. I think the South Park guys have parodied that pretty well. But, you know, but he gets a lot out of these guys. And I think there's one other one that we got, we've got to mention specifically. And it's Kiefer Sutherland, who's in his total, like, Lost Boys days. You know, it's so hard to not watch him now having been a big fan of 24 like I was, watched every season of that show, and not see Jack Bauer every time I see him. But I also remember him as you know, the Lost Boys and, and Flatliners. And I mean, I remember, I've watched Kiefer Sutherland pretty much his whole life, you know, but I remember him in this role. And he looks like all the hoodlum kids my dad described going to school with and that were like his older brother's friends or, or the enemies in high school and stuff. He just comes off as such a menace. And I don't know, you know, Donald Sutherland has played bad guys before, but he doesn't really have a menace. There's something about Kiefer Sutherland's eyes that he just does this thing and he just has such a menace to him that it's it's overwhelming. But he is uh, he is incredibly effective in his role as Ace here, the sort of head of the hood. It's his eyes and the way he talks. It's just when he gets that mad, he gets or he's like talking down. You notice when he kind of like tilts back his head, and he gets kind of the squinty eye thing where he just kind of talks down to you, you know, like you're like an ant. And anytime I think of Kiefer Sutherland, I obviously I think of David from the Lost Boys. <laughs> yeah. It's just and, and this is almost like these are almost like you know, I don't know, like what's the word I'm looking for, where they're like, you know, these these characters are almost soulmates in a way. I mean, this is probably who David was before he got turned. <laughs> yeah, you know? you know, that's a good point. Yeah, it could, this could be like David's grandfather. You know, if, yeah. if if David's a kid of the 80s that got turned into a vampire, then this would have been who his dad or his grandfather was in the 50s. Just this t- tough guy who talked a big game, but, but like a lot of bullies, when you finally stood up to him, he would back down. And Stephen yeah, King does this a lot with it when it comes to bullies. You know, I, I mean, I can't watch this and not think of Henry Bowers and it, you know, we'll get to him in, in a week or so. But I mean, that that's the same kind of thing as this huge bully that you're just waiting for somebody to finally put him in his place. And at the end there, when Gordy finally does, it's, uh, and, and the way Chris is talking to him and stuff, it's, it's pretty neat. And you wonder if they ever took a, like a real beating from him for that. You know, or if he was just all talk. I mean, that's the thing about Ace is you think he is you know capable of doing what he's talking about, but then again, we don't really get to see him do anything. He just talks. Yeah, definitely. I think he's just all talk. And the whole thing too is, you know, we got John Cusack, who I didn't even realize that was John Cusack at first, uh, playing uh, Gordy's brother. And you know, to me, it's just like I think that with Ace, it's always going to be talk. I think in the end, you know. Somebody's brother's always going to stand up for him if anything ever got out of hand. So with me, I always thought at the end of the movie that it's all talk and he wasn't going to do anything for, you know, who the kids were. And, you know, it's just typical bully. All, t- you know, all bark, no balls. Yeah, yeah. Um, and, and Chester would have definitely, you know, gone, you know, sick balls on, on old Ace there. But yeah, I mean, that's our cast here and stuff. No doubt. Like you said, you know, and you went through the plot summary, we've got a lot of detail there. It is really simple, though. It's, you know, Vern overhears his older brother and a guy talk about, oh, we, you know, we should have called the cops. What are we going to do about this? No, we boosted a car. We can't tell anybody about it. And he comes and tells his buddies, hey, I know where a dead body is. And I love how, like, they're all messing with him. And then he drops that line on them. And they're all like, what? 
And they were like, oh, yeah, we got to go see it. And they just immediately come up with this little scheme. And I thought well, that was a really just a, a great plot term because we're introduced to all these characters very quickly. And then we're immediately on the road with them. Yeah, definitely. Um, to me, it's just like when we're talking about, you know, we're going to do the movie It, and it's just like, God, this movie is so much like It. With it really is, it. yeah. I mean, I think I think if, honestly, if Stephen King would have not had the you, uh, epilogue for this, you know, novella about what happened to these kids, I could really see It being the sequel to this story. Because really, I mean, Ace is definitely Henry Bowers. I mean, those guys are basically the same character. And even all these guys, I mean, you got like Gordy, I mean, not Gordy, uh, Vern. That's the fat kid in it. I mean, all these guys are just perfect as it. So it's like, yeah, I mean, throughout the whole movie, I'm thinking, boy, this is a lot like it. <laughs> That's a good point. And, you know, the thing is, is this came out in a, a section of short stories in 1982 or so. It was written over a long period of time around the same time. Now, it didn't come out in the book till 86, but it's in the same time period. I'm not surprised that Stephen King, you know, doesn't plagiarize himself. I mean, he's known to do that. We've called it out so many times already. He does. So it's not surprising that they're so similar. And I think it's, it's one of the reasons we stuck these two together because they do have such similar stories. These sort of coming of age tales where these seemingly, you know, castaway loser kids have to overcome all these odds to tackle some feat. These guys, though, don't have any, like, supernatural foes. Their whole thing is they're really trying to go 23 miles to see a dead body and not get caught by their folks and not get, you know, killed by the elements. And they're trying to outrace this group of hoodlums that are also trying to get there first because, and I love the whole motivation. It's the same motivation every 12-year-old ever has. Man, we'll be famous. We'll be on the news. <laughs> Yeah, I think it, it's it's a realistic plot. I mean, you, you hear, you'd think, you know, you think back to when you were this age and stuff like that, and it's like being boys and everything. It's something you would totally do because at the time, I mean, you're a kid, you think you're immortal. You have, you have absolutely no basic regard of what death is. So I think, you know, hearing like, oh, a dead body, you're thinking almost like a movie sense or TV show sense or in... And I think it's actually when you go if you fast forward a little bit in the movie when they actually see the body it kind of hits them like what it actually is. And it's just like, I just, I love the element of that, how it's like they go from like really wanting to do this to when reality hits them and, you know, mortality hits them where it's like they have a complete change of character. You know, they go through so much along that way and particularly our two leaders. I mean, the thing is, is Vern and Teddy, as much as they can do, they're really following along here. You know, they're, they're there for uh, to be support to Chris and Gordy. And at two different times, Chris and Gordy sort of combine in each other about where they are. I mean, Chris is the one that confronts Gordy about, you know, look, I know that your dad favored your brother, and you do too, and stop trying to act like it, and stop trying to act tough and be one of us. You need to stay in school and take care of yourself. You're not going to be a loser like us. And then on the other side, Gordy gets Chris to open up and talk about, you know, don't you want more out of your life? Don't you see you've got potential? And Chris is like, yeah, I'm just afraid I can't do anything about it. You know, it's that whole back and forth. So they've been there with each other. So when they get there and they see the body, and Gordy just loses it. Chris is the one that's like, hey, guys, we got to go make a stretcher. Just leave him alone right now. He needs to kind of deal with this. Because you hear from Gordy earlier on, he's like, I didn't even cry at my brother's funeral. And you get that when he sees this Ray Brower kid, this is the first time he's really dealing with the death of his own brother. And that's what I was trying to get at, too, is just like, I think 
you know, we all remember, I think, you know, we can all remember the first like family, major family death we had to deal with. And I think a lot of times when you first see it or deal with it as a kid, if it happened then, you almost don't take it as reality. And I think in a way, this is just reinforcing the fact to him that it's like, you know, his brother died and, you know, his whole life's changed and everything. And that's why he's just completely breaking down. I mean, I remember when my grandma died, it's like when I heard that she died, it was like nothing. It was like, oh, okay. But not until you actually just you, you come to terms with it, whether, you know, it's a funeral or in Gordy's case, this, that it really hits you. And the first time it hits you, I mean, it's like nothing else. Oh, yeah, totally. I mean, it's, 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 uh, an experience that can only, it can't be described. It can only be lived through. Like there's just no way to really tell anybody about it. That's why, you know, you hear people talk all the time about, you know, especially my friends that have children and stuff. How do I explain to my kids about so-and-so passing away? When's too young? When's too old? And, you know, and that has got to be a delicate balance. I mean, I, you know, I can't remember how my parents handled that, you know, and I don't know that they did. I, I think it may have been one of those things that, I just figured out as I got older, but that's really what these kids are, are figuring out. And particularly what Gordy is coming to, to deal with here. This whole story is about death. If you think about it, I mean, you got the dead kid. All right. You got his dead brother. And then the whole, uh, impetus of the story is the fact that his best friend from childhood has been murdered. And even though they hadn't seen each other in a decade, they obviously they were still friends and they, you know, enough he would have kept up with him and, and recognized it when he saw the article in the paper. And this is Gordy's way of kind of dealing with that is writing it all out. And I, in a lot of ways, you, you know that, and you know, Stephen King always puts writers the central of his stories often when he's dealing with something too, you know, and it's Stephen King dealing with, you know, how he came to understand death. Yeah, and to me, like, this is like the quintessential coming-of-age story, because really, I mean, what are each of these characters doing in this movie? They're coming-of-age. They're, they're realizing who they are, the paths are coming down, and it's just, it's perfect, you know, it's just the, the most, you hear, I mean, you hear that phrase a lot for these type of movies, but this is like the absolute perfect definition of what that phrase means. Well, think about in the 25, 26 years since this movie came out, how many times you've seen this repeated and copied. I mean, at least a dozen, if not more, you know, I mean, they've recreated and tried to recreate the drama of this so many times, so much to say that they'll describe films as it's stand by me on ice, you know, or whatever. I mean, that's what people say. And when you and and even the song, you know, it it was named, you know, they didn't name it the body because they thought that would be really confusing and they didn't feel like that title was really indicative of what it was about. So they came up with stand by me and they just picked that song, the Benny King song out of the pile there because Rob Reiner's a big fan of that, that music and that was a renaissance for all of that stuff i mean that song was everywhere you couldn't go anywhere without hearing it and now i can't hear that song and not think about this movie i mean they're just tied together you know and you and then that trope became something to do with everything let's find some old 50s song and couple it with this coming of age story you know i mean that seemed to happen all the time in movies so this film is so influential because it was the first of its kind, or at least was the first in a long time that, that did it right. Oh, definitely, definitely. And, I mean, I'll even bring up it. I mean, I know we haven't reviewed it yet, but it's like, I really think even, like, when they did the TV, I'm not even talking about the novel, I'm talking about the TV adaptation for it, is, like, I think they borrowed so much from this movie as far as just the look and feel and even just, like, character choices. So much... Even, you know, Stephen King work was borrowed from this. And you watch even other movies that are considered to be, you know, 
coming of age. I mean, you got like the Sandlot, or you got like you know, it's that one with uh, the guy from the little kid from that show with the guy from Breaking Bad, uh, Malcolm in the Middle. It's his, yeah, yeah, uh, Frankie. Uh, Spotted, yeah, yeah, that Spotted Me one or whatever it's called. It's like so much is just borrowed from it as far as just the movie. I mean, the music that's played and just the look and feel. I mean, when you watch like. When you watch the Sandlot and you watch like this, I mean, don't don't they feel like the same movie almost? Just like the look and feel of everything and just the music cues. Oh yeah, totally. But I mean, even like a lesser film like Rookie of the Year, you know, or something, still does the same kind of stuff. I'll give you another one. Think about Big with Tom Hanks. That came out two years after this, okay? And it, it there's so much about the his friendship with his little friend in that too that feels very much like this because they're the same age, you know. And Penny Marshall's another one of those, like Rob Reiner, that does those kind of sappy, you know, romantic drama comedy things, you know, and that's what Big is in a lot of ways. And I mean, that's another coming of age tale, but it, again, borrows a lot from the the setup of this film. And like, I mean, when you do something right, I mean, if anything we know about Hollywood is they're going to recycle it, right? If you do it right, they're going to try to redo it as many times as they can. And I mean, geez, how many times has Rob Reiner tried to redo this? I mean, you remember that movie North? I mean, that was a terrible film, but it was pretty much trying to do this with just one kid instead of, you know, several. You know, I've seen him do this, uh, you know, several times. I mean, uh, anytime he's trying to do things with kids, you know, it, it seems to come back to this and, and sort of these same tropes over and over again. And it's the interesting take of him. And he's one of the guys, though, that uh, is a distinction of having directed two Stephen King adaptations because he's the guy that came around and did Misery, too. And I think it's interesting that they handed him that property when it came time to do it again. We talk about that when we get to that podcast. But again, I can see why, because he would understand when there's not supernatural elements involved and you need somebody to play up the, I guess you'd say the the natural things that happen between people that can seem fantastic at times. He's a good director for that. And the this story and the way it arcs and the way it works, it would work in that same situation. Oh, definitely, definitely. I think, yeah, I mean, when they chose the director for Misery, I mean, I think just how much this movie is a very much a cult classic, very much influenced them to do Misery, and I think, you know, that story really fits the tone and theme of this movie as far as, you know, people, you know, just, maybe not theme so much, because they are completely different movies, but just like the tone and feel. I think the tone and feel is right, and then let's talk just a little bit, too, about the you know, there's really not a lot to the story. I mean, we could light it out there. I, I I think you hit the nail on the head a bit ago when you said it's great to see kid actors get to act like real kids. You know, these kids do what boys, preteen boys do. They mess around in the woods. They talk about girls some. They talk about their favorite show. They sing the theme song. You know, they, they're talking about this, that, and the other. And then they, you know, they and they try really daring and stupid things. You know, Teddy's run on the train tracks and not only him doing that but the way chris pulls him off and then that whole bit at the end with chris is like hey man we're cool right you know and like you know, give me five it's fine right like he's not gonna let him walk away till they're square and teddy's just defiant like i could have made it i could have made it you're gonna get yourself killed you know what did you make all of that i just made it as just close friends i mean how many times was, you know, you had friends doing stupid stuff, you know, whether it was, you know, you'd be going out, you know, hanging out at the mall and someone's trying to steal something or, you know, someone's just acting a fool looking for a fight one night or in, sometimes you just got that one level-headed friend that can just 
grab them and not care what the guy's reaction is and just be like, you know, stop it, man. You know, just kind of like, you know, that harsh love type thing that sometimes, you know, people have for each other where it's like, I'm going to slap you across the face and straighten you up. And that's kind of how I took it and something that the guy needed because honestly, I didn't think if he would have done that, he probably would have got hit by the train. So in a way, he saved his life. I mean, he completely saved his life. Totally, yeah. And you get the idea that at late, you know, after you hear later on that they grew apart is that Teddy lost you know, somebody in his life that would pull him off the tracks before it was too late. You know, like I, I wouldn't have been surprised if the story had ended with, and you know, one night Teddy decided to play chicken with the train and got too close. You know, I mean, I guess that's maybe too stereotypical and too tropey, but it's, it would have, it would have made sense if that's how it ended with him. Yeah, it could have been, but I think also him seeing that body and everything like that probably maybe set him straight because uh, look what happened to that kid. He didn't win the fight with the train. Not many, not 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 many things do. Yeah, this is true, and you know what? That's another thing. We never know why Ray Brower got killed. Just that he did, and it's safe to assume, like you did there, that it's he probably was just playing on the tracks like they were. And as as uh, Gordy puts it in the voiceover, you know, he knocked him clean out of his shoes. You know, he had no yeah. idea what he even which, Yeah, which actually, believe it or not, I had a friend in high school who did that. Oh my gosh, really? Yeah, and like I said, not many things win that battle. And unfor- unfortunately, maybe a little graphic is what watching the movie. I'm like, the body wouldn't be intact yeah. if it got hit by a train. No, no, you're tr- you're right, and you're probably not. And that's that's the the unfortunate reality of that is that. You, but like you say, these kids had no idea what to expect. You know what? And that's the thing. I, I you know they never really talk about. But what do they expect to find when they get there? Right? And then when they find it, it's it's almost like. This is, we can't let any, we're not going to take glory for this. This isn't about fame. We need to get this kid to his parents and let them know that, you know, he's gone and let them take care of this because it's not right to, for us to try to be famous for this. You know, I mean, that's, that's what I got from that. Well, I think their whole journey, they grew a little bit. I mean, they're already close friends, but I think in a way that they just bonded even more. And I think them, you know, seeing like, you know, the pulling off the train tracks or, you know, the one guy having a leech on his wing or something, just how, like, they fell for each other. And also, and they see this kid who's their age dead, and I think in a way it kind of just rang back to him, like, that could be them or one of their friends, and, you know, how would they feel if that was one of their friends? And just hit him like, dude, we're using this as, like, a, why you know, like a scavenger hunt, and that's not right, and we need to really, you know, do the right thing here. No, you're right. Yeah, you're right, and and it is about doing the the right thing. Yeah, I mean, and the right thing is we're going to make an anonymous phone call, call it in, and just let the authorities you know take care of this. But I love the the final showdown between Ace, his group of hoods, and the kids. You know, and it's this gun that you know uh, uh, Chris has stolen from his old man or whatever that Gordy has grabbed out of the pack, and he's got it leveled right at Ace. And I had no doubt in my mind. I mean, he would have probably fired a round off at his foot if he needed to, to to scare him away. I mean, it, the, the resolve in his face there is is some of the best acting Will Wheaton does in the whole film, and he does a really good job in the film. But that's probably his best scene. Yeah, definitely, and I have no doubt that he would have shot him in the head. I really think that at this point he was just tired of it, tired of this guy's crap. I mean, like I said, he's probably been picked on by this guy his whole life, and also they're going to show up, and you know they've come closer together as friends and want to do the right thing, and then you got these guys coming there who are 
bad seeds to begin with and they want to do something completely wrong and something that, you know, that they've actually earned before them. And I think he's just was tired of it. And I really think that, you know what, he probably would have pulled the trigger on him. And, you know, it may sound a little psychotic of me, but I think he's fully, fully justified if he did. I mean, that guy is probably, they don't tell whatever happened to him, but you can just imagine what happened to him later. Oh, I mean, you know, he wound up in, he wound up in prison. He's somewhere in Shaw. He's in Shaw. He's in Shaw. Shawshank. Yeah. Yeah. He's one of, he's one of the sisters in Shawshank. (laughs) Probably so. So, I, yeah. Why didn't he add him in there, man? That would have been uh, probably because he forgot the character. But you know, I'm surprised. Man, I should, I should, I should be his freaking editor, man. <laughs> Stephen King, call me. I know you're listening. <laughs> yeah, I'm sure he's found our podcast by now. Well, look, I think we're at the point of the podcast where it's time to give our final thoughts, recommendations, and popcorn ratings. So, what are yours for Stand by Me? Oh, um, very high recommendation. I can't give it an extra large popcorn because it's just it's a. The movie, there's been so many movies that have done this. I'm not going to say they've done it better, but it's just a movie that you've seen many times. And, you know, you say that all the time, like, you know, movies like, you know, Halloween and stuff, they've been ripped off and copied that it almost kind of hurts them. And the way this that does it to this movie a little bit, because I've seen this movie so many times in different forms, but it's still the best of the breed, and it's still a very good movie. So for me, I give it a large. I, yeah, I join you in that large popcorn. It's not extra large because it's not perfect, but it's really, really good. And uh, it's just a good, sweet story. And I'll tell you, it never gets old. Uh, you know, and but I'll say this. It's one of those kind of films that I, it hits a nerve with you. And I think it's one of those that's best watched with a member of that generation, either nearby or at least within a phone call's distance, you know, where you can you relate with them and talk with them about this time. It always makes it more fulfilling for me, at least. But, I, yeah, I recommend it as well, and I think it's one of the, the better Stephen King adaptations that's ever been done, and it's one of the better things we've ever reviewed here. And, and we you know, we've kind of hit around a lot of it. We can walk through it piece by piece like we do a lot of films because it's just so good, and it's worth just watching. So if you've never seen it before, folks, my goodness, please go watch it. I mean, it's it's available at every kind of video outlet you can find. It's it's out there, so please go check it out. We recommend it. You won't be sorry, and uh, definitely a large popcorn all the way. So when they- And i got, I got to bring up, too, I mean, I don't want to cut out blow the whole thing before we review the movies, but it just seems so funny that the best Stephen King movies tend to be the ones that aren't horrific. You know, you're hitting on something there, and I think by the time we get to the end of our retrospective, that'll be a question we need to answer. Is is he a master of horror, or is he just a really good storyteller? I mean, that's... It would it'd be interesting to, to have that discussion later on after we get into this, but you know what? Next time, man, we're definitely going deep end of the i definitely one of the more horror stories of stephen king we're gonna do it the 1990 tv miniseries adaptation of the you know what uh, many people would consider and i would be one of them stephen king's best work and one of his most engrossing books uh, we'll talk all about that next time but can't wait to get around doing that one probably gonna be a long one but uh boy gonna be a lot of fun and i uh, look forward to doing that and we decided to do something too initially you know nick we were going to do 10 stephen king adaptations but we decided we needed to expand that by a couple of chapters because we we did the trilogy of terror that was cat's eye and uh, both were largely unsatisfied by it. And you brought up a really neat point that what we really ought to do, if we want to do Stephen King, 
adaptations like that as we should do the creep show you know one and two so they're both on netflix right now so we've decided hey we're gonna throw in those two creep show flicks as well so you're getting those as well folks here in the early part of 2013 as part of this stephen king retrospective but well we got so much other stuff coming up man can't wait till we get around to reviewing some of the films that we've got uh, lined up in the pipeline tell you guys about them in the coming weeks but uh, for now uh, you can check out more of our stuff in our archive section at our website continuousplaypodcast.com slash movies if you like the show leave us a review on iTunes it helps other people find it uh, hook up with us on Facebook and Twitter let us know what you think and we'll be glad to interact with you there so until next time for Nick I'm Jay thanks for tuning in to Filmstrip thanks for listening to Filmstrip would you two just shut the Visit our website, continuousplaypodcast.com, for more reviews and episodes. All content used or discussed in this podcast is the property of the respective owners and used under the Fair Use Act, Section 504C2, Title 17.